You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archaeology. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Theodora Dreyer, the research lead for climate and water at the AI Now Institute and research assistant professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. We're also joined by Dr. Amra Salomon, an assistant professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a founding member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice. Dr. Dreyer and Dr. Salomon, among others, collaborated to produce the report Water Justice and Technology, covering topics on both North and Central America. Thank you so much for talking with us today about all the many interesting issues that your report brings up and spotlights. I do want to circle back around to the central question of your report, looking at relief and crisis. One of the things that you talk about is how framing water technology or water policy in relief terms sort of leads us to quantifying things around water in terms of efficiency or optimization or whatever, you know, how many acre feet, how many kilowatt hours are being generated. And I like the way that you sort of problematize these things and lead us to sort of different questions. So if we were going to say, let's do science around water, what are better metrics, metrics that would lead us more in the direction of water justice? I think that is such an excellent question. And in doing this project collectively, I saw what's very present in everybody's work, which is this idea that we get attached to business as usual. And then something that may have been created for a historical past gets written into process and it gets written into procedure and then it becomes a standard. And so in the report, for example, Andrea Ballestero is interrogating the differences between groundwater and aquifers. And I bring up her work because I think it resonates with your question. So groundwater is also something that can lend itself to optimization because the water can easily become commodified. It gets treated in units of analysis, whereas the aquifer is place-based. And it's about community and relationships and place. So there's a difference there. But something that Dr. Ballestero pulls out in her work is something could have happened 70 years ago where there's these groundwater processes and then it just gets written into scientific textbooks. It gets written into policy and then it persists. And in another case, um, Dean Shahim, who wrote about Mexico City as a sinking city, this has to do with the fact that a drainage system that was created in the 1970s has outlived its usefulness because the city has expanded in unpredictable ways. And so then it's reinforcing inequitable what are called sacrifice zones. And these are the zones that feel the first and immediate impacts of flooding and other climate change related things. So the drainage system gets, as an infrastructural process, gets embedded 
in the 1970s, and then it can't change over time. And the same thing is true for optimization and efficiency. It's first important to underscore how deep this entrenchment is. Just looking at the Colorado River, I see algorithmic planning systems as being a more recent iteration of conceptions of the Colorado River Basin going back to the 19th century that conceives of the landscape as a gridded space. On top of that, you get quantitative water law, which has dominated Western water law through the course of the 20th century that conceives of water in acre feet that can become these units and that are governed by two policies, the policy of prior appropriation and the doctrine of equitable apportionment. And the doctrine of equitable apportionment states that this water can be equally divided by U.S. territories. So it's not prioritizing Native American water rights. It's saying this water is divisible between Arizona, California, New Mexico, Nevada. This is an old water law that got reemboldened in 1922 with the Colorado River Compact. And then it got reemboldened in 1963 when the Supreme Court made the Arizona v. California decision. So this conceptualization of a gridded landscape that is primed for optimization analysis and this conceptualization of water as commodity is already 100 years old. So if you think about it, this relates to policies, municipalities, it relates to data processing systems. It's an interlocking web of entrenchment. And then in the mid-20th century, algorithmic designers started designing water allocation systems based on these same borders. So they're virtual borders, the same borders that the Bureau of Reclamation has drawn. And so an important intervention with the water report is to bring clarity to that entrenchment um, and put that to question in the first place. Amra, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I have a lot to think about there from what Theodore just said. But so my father's family is from the Yuma area, uh, Yuma, Arizona, the lowest sort of point of the Colorado River in the United States. And we're part of non-federally recognized indigenous community of Otham and UMM folks with the historical presence at the confluence of the Gila River and the Colorado River in Yuma. And 1922, the year that that Colorado River compact was signed was the year that we lost our recognition. We were actually supposed to be forcibly relocated to Colorado River Tribes Reservation. And then that year, they rejected all of the applications of Otham and Yoema people. That compact opened up the ability to extract the river water for settler farmland instead of for Native people. The way that I was always taught to think about the river was through my grandfather's stories. And in his stories, he would always talk about the Colorado River the same way his grandparents talked to him about it, which was how it was before the dams in the 1800s. And so the lessons that I learned about the river and the way that I knew the river was through these stories of its immense power, that the river was huge. You know, now if you go to Yuma, if, if you go to like Yuma Crossing where there's the Riverside Park and you look at the, the water there, the rivers, I think last weekend I was there and it was about four and a half feet deep. 
And in the stories that I heard from my grandfather, at that point, the river would have been 30 to 40 feet deep before the dams. So that's the amount that it's been extracted by the time it hits Yuma. And so it used to be this really massive, very powerful being that provided people sustenance in the way of life. And all of these species that he would talk about, he would talk about fish that were over six feet long, you know, fish that could be almost 10 feet long. And I wonder, you know, especially for my son's generation of indigenous kids from Arizona, will they ever know a fish that size? Because we don't have rivers that can contain and provide a healthy habitat for fish that size anymore. The lesson that we always hear from our stories is that the river is unruly. It likes to flood. It likes to move around. It likes to change position. And you're supposed to be very cautious in the desert when it rains because washes will just appear out of nowhere and you could get caught and you know you could drown in a canal or a wash. What we're supposed to be doing as humans who are river people is we're supposed to be respecting that balance and that desire of the river, not thwarting it. It's just a very different worldview to think about what would it mean to think about a solution for the drought, the drying up of the river. It's now in this point where people are afraid that the river is dying, literally. What would it mean to work from a perspective where we need to bring it back to life and allow it to be unruly again? And I don't know that folks who run water policy are open to thinking about the water as its own entity and its own desire in that sense. Your story reminds me of an encounter I had not too long ago. I was down at the Isleta Pueblo Cultural Center, and they were mounting an exhibit of historic photographs. And there was a, a gentleman in there who was really interested in one of these big, large-scale landscape photographs of Isleta from about 100 years ago. He was interested because it showed the river, the Rio Grande, going through the Pueblo. And he was showing me how the river was sort of like you're saying, fundamentally different in character. It was channeled. It was swampy around the river. There were wetlands. The habitat was different. You know, that riparian zone supported really different species than it does now. He was saying to me, oh, the... Bureau Reclamation is doing this big project because Isleta has primacy in the water claims, I guess. And so the Bureau is trying to do some dredging operations or whatever to make sure that they get delivered the number of acre feet that they are allocated in the compacts. And he was saying it's never going to be the same river. There's just not the same amount of water in it anymore. You could take down all the dams. It's never going to be the same river. To me, that was a personal experience that provided a lens for understanding some of the issues you're talking about. You can get your acre feet, but you still don't have your river. It's so much more. And in some ways, thinking about the stories of rivers throughout the continent and the loss of rivers and all of the efforts to control and contain and move the water and make it produce things for the development of cities and for the development of plantation agriculture has been the story of the death of the landscape across the continent as well. And so you can see this sort of parallel story anywhere where there was or is a river, but it's also a fundamental different relationship with the world around you and different respect for it as well. I think for those of us coming from indigenous communities, we are trying to bring back those practices of, of relationship and respect and recipro reciprocity with the sacred beings like the rivers. 
For other folks who are not from Indigenous communities, the question is, is there a way to live with the water and the land that you are on in a different way that's not harmful? You know, is there a way for our futures to potentially meet? Because much of the future that we've been talking about is this settler utopia, right? A lot of these measurement systems that Theodora was talking about come from a settler utopia that was dependent upon the erasure of indigenous peoples and the removal of indigenous peoples or dependent upon enslaved African-Americans or dependent upon oppressed migrant labor. And so if you think about what is the alternative futurism of the people of the oppressed, right? All of us together, is there a point where our futures can meet and is there a point where our futures can meet in relationship with the environment? And those are, I think, more interesting questions to me. You know, how could we think about instead of the settler utopia or this colonial utopia as the technological future that we're being driven towards? Is there a moment to resist that and say, you know, the future that I want is a future where, you know, my future generations are meeting in positive relationship and balance with their environment? but also with other communities. That cyclically kind of goes back to our future as autumn, like, because we were a trading society, a cosmopolitan society, historically. So we've always had relationships with other people. As a human being, like thinking about now we're in this global world dealing with a global problem such as climate crisis, I don't want us to live in the future where only rich folks have access to things, where only rich folks have access to future where rich folks don't have to sacrifice, where the 1% gets to reproduce themselves at the expense of everyone else. That's not the future that I want. Rather, I want to think about what could a future for Indigenous folks, African-American folks, disabled folks, <laughs> refugees, you know, all of our you know, marginalized communities together for us, what is our future together? Well, hopefully we'll get there. Theodora, Amra, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about your work. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And if you would like more information about Dr. Dreyer's work and Dr. Salomon's work, you can visit AINowInstitute.org or the-CIEJ.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. So you can find me just sitting at my